Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg. And for this episode, really excited to have Shannon Wilson on. Shannon has been a longtime mentor of mine. I met him out in Eugene, Oregon years ago when I was out there doing ecosystem and forest advocacy. And Shannon is one of those folks who has been in this for the long haul. Uh, He's been working to protect ecosystems for decades, and he is still at it. And welcome to the podcast, Shannon. Thanks, Josh. Really glad you're here. Basically, let's just start with your background. So in terms of, you know, where you grew up and how you start becoming aware of just environmental issues in general. Ronald Reagan had just gotten reappointed. And the only reason I was going to college was to get a degree to see if I could try to save places, uh, you know, save wildlands, save ecosystems. And I was completely disillusioned after Ronald Reagan was reappointed in 1984. And uh, subsequent to that, I, you know, I floated around and uh, I worked for the Rough and Ready Mill for about, I don't know, about four months before uh, I, it nearly killed me when I got hit by a two by six, 12 foot two by six off the sorter chain. And uh, it knocked some sense into me as well as about 20 stitches. And so then I started going back to school, going, you know, community college. And um, I got a, a degree in a uh, two year degree in forestry. And lo and behold, you know, out of the blue, I get hired by the Forest Service to do spotted owl surveys. And uh, it was kind of a dream job to me. It's like, wow, I'm actually going to be able to save forests, you know, from being clear cut. And uh, and we were basically a crew of 10 spotted owl surveyors uh, in 1990 and 91. And we were, you know, saving thousands of acres of, of ancient forest from being clear cut because we were finding pairs of spotted owls in pretty much every old growth forest that they were slated to be logged in our one district, which was like tens of thousands of acres of uh, proposed clear cuts. And by the second year, though, um, you know, I'm working there and I think, wow, I mean, I'm going to work for the Forest Service now and do wildlife biology and save forests and stuff like that. So that was where I wanted to go. And uh, lo and behold, some 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 uh, firefighter crew people started telling me about how the district ranger there had used a whole firefighting crew to uh, basically illegally take uh, U logs that were being harvested um, and transporting them in uh, Forest Service vehicles and then giving them to calling them and giving them to a local politician in Douglas County. And I was just like, whoa, that's, that sounds like uh, blatantly illegal. And so, you know, I end up, I took that to my supervisor and he was like, well, you know, it is true. After he said, he, he looked into it and he says, it is true, but I'm not gonna do anything about it. Hmm. And so it's up to you. And so at that point I decided, well, you know, I can't work for this agency if this is the way they do things. And I actually called in the whistleblower hotline on this guy 
and even sent a letter to the supervisor of the Umpqua National Forest and told him, and nothing ever happened. You know, the mm -hmm. guy kept his job, probably got a nice retirement 10 years later or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, but he was committing felonies, something I would have went to jail for. And uh, so then I moved on from there. I was like, forget it. I can't work for this agency, you know. Yeah, well, that's really fascinating because most who call themselves environmentalists um, have not been a part of the inside of the system. So you were, you know, involved with what logging industry was doing. You're like, well, this is my area. I'm going to see what's going on with that. You're like, all right, I'm done with that. Not for me. You were part of the Forest Service because you wanted to do some good things for the forest. You realized that they were not actually protecting the forest. So you you tried to do it through the system and you realized that the system was not adequate for protecting forests, that it didn't really have that in mind. And you actually tried to call attention to it. You know, you thought, hey, I, this is what this entity is about. And then they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So where did you go from there? Did you just, you didn't just give up, obviously. Well, after that, you know, I, I decided, well, I need to move to Eugene, get away from you know, Roseburg, you know, one of the timber capitals of the uh, United States. And uh, and I figured, you know, Eugene has an activist community. I could probably find, you know, environmental organizations to work with and, and you know, maybe even get a job with one of them eventually. Um, if I, you know, was dedicated and, and smart, successful, had the right background, um, so that's what I did. I went, moved to Eugene, figuring, you know, I'd uh, plug into what was going on there. I worked for the BLM mm -hmm. doing marble murelet, uh, another endangered bird um, surveys uh, for about three season. Um, but, you know, I was also going to meetings and I went to some of my first, uh, like, environmental meetings, including uh, Earth First uh, uh people who were organizing, trying to save forests through, uh, you know, direct action. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So about what year was that? That was probably between 1990 and, and, and 94. Um, and I worked with a bunch of different, you know, more mainstream groups, uh, Oregon Wild, which used to be called the uh, Oregon Natural Resources Council. Mm -hmm. I was hanging out with those folks, um, going to roadless areas, monitoring timber sales, um, you know, finding spotted owls if we could. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, the Northwest Forest Plan happened, and uh, basically, you know, some of these groups uh, compromised and made a deal with Bill Clinton and um, basically sacrificed half the ancient forest to the logging industry and then said, oh, well, the other half is for spotted owls, sort of. You know, we'll still be logging in some of those areas that were supposedly set aside for spotted owls, but, you know, but we're still going to be, like, managing um, some of those areas to increase the speed of which they would become habitat for spotted owl. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was, you know, that was more corruption that, you know, I discovered that the local environmental groups were committing 
<laughs> as early as, you know, 93 and 94, that they were making deals, letting uh, old growth timber sales, you know, go ahead, you know, lifting their 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 lawsuits and letting timber sales be logged because there was deals to be made with Bill Clinton. Yep. Well, that's that's really uh, disappointing, I imagine, at the time. So you went through all these different entities thinking that they would be doing forest protection stuff. You gave up on doing it through the government. You're like, all right, I'm going to be a part of environmental groups. They're the ones who are fighting for the forest. And then you found out, oops, they too are not always doing that with the forest's best interest in mind. So how did that really affect your perspective on the whole environmental movement? How did, how did that influence your actions? Well, yeah, you know, I tried to work through these different entities thinking, you know, this, these are legitimate. These people are, you know, dedicated, you know, and, and want to save things, want to protect things. Um, it's in their mission statement, right? Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I come as I work within the, these entities, I find out, well, no, it's, there's something else underlying in there that's, that's, you know, doesn't seem quite ethical. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, I moved on. I was like, well, you know, earth first, you know, it's no compromise in defense of mother earth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I had actually went to my first earth first base camp. It was in Idaho. I'd happened. I was going to go to Montana to go visit some friends who moved to Missoula and, uh, some of my old spotted owl survey friends. And, uh, I figured, well, you know, I've, there's this earth first base camp over in this place called Cove Mallard, which was touted as the largest, uh, unprotected wild area in the lower 48 States. Hmm. And the forest service was, had proposed and was actually doing it, logging and, and building, uh, well, over a hundred miles of logging roads into the road, this area, mm -hmm. um, tens of thousands of acres of uh, timber sales that they were logging mm -hmm. and earth first was in the way blocking it and uh, you know, doing direct action. And so I went out there, visit base camp and uh, you know, the first day I was out there, I get out there and you know, I'm in the base camp. There's only like a handful of people and some people come, you know, some locals, I guess, come driving by on this dead end road and, just a you know a few hundred feet from the base camp, they started uh, shooting their high-powered rifle uh, above our heads, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so we all hit the ground, you know, lay on the ground, and uh, you know, ten minutes goes by, and and you know, I guess they double back the other way, but uh, it wasn't enough to scare me off. I stuck around and hiked around the the, the wilderness area for the next couple of days. And, uh, I stayed involved with earth first and, mm -hmm. you know, for the next basically almost 30 years. Right. So earth first and then Cascadia forest defenders, which was basically an offshoot of earth first, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, in 1995, uh, Bill Clinton signed the salvage logging rider, which basically, uh, suspended all environmental laws in the nation, basically, to uh, on national forests and BLM lands to increase logging and log uh, ancient forests that had been stopped by lawsuits, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 
before the the Northwest Forest Plan, and uh, so we I jumped into that uh, you know as you know in 1995, and uh, did that for at least 10 to 15 years, uh, just full time, you know fighting ancient forest timber sales from that uh, from that legislation. Right. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about your career is that you didn't just participate in one aspect of the environmental movement. So you were a part of a lot of the hardcore direct action stuff. So going out into the forests with blockades and things like that and tree sits. But you were also a part of, I wouldn't call it the mainstream component, but, you know, organizing advocacy stuff that goes into public outreach, things like that to the point where actually you were a part of something called uh, many rivers group, Sierra club. So you were a part of the Sierra club. Uh, what was your experience with that? Well, yeah, at the same time I was doing direct action and, and, and starting 1995, um, I actually had a friend who was part of this, uh, of the Sierra club. And he's like, hey, we need some uh, executive committee members that are a little more edgy to be on this local group. And it was called the Mini Rivers Group, Sierra Club. And so I joined him in 1995. And, uh, you know, and, and I was on the executive committee. And, and eventually I started working with the Oregon chapter Sierra Club. I was one of, the, uh, one of their state coordinators. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the end commercial logging state coordinator for a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, I was going to their statewide meetings. Some, some of the meetings were two days or more in length, you know, and, you know, we're trying to, you know, protect wildlands in Oregon is one of them and, and stop logging. Um, but, uh, yeah. And so, you know, I kept on working both angles within that system. Um, uh, trying to start and, you know, keep my own nonprofit going, um, uh, as well as working with Cascadia forest defenders and, uh, you know, trying to throw up as many tree sits as we could to stop the logging. Right. And, uh, yeah, we had tree sits for five years straight, uh, in one timber sale called fall Creek. And it was actually, you know, thousands of people, uh, sat in those trees over those five years to save, save those areas. Um, mm -hmm. they're still standing, but, mm -hmm. uh, forest service is still trying to log all around them. But yeah, so I, I was working all these different angles and, um, yeah, it was full time, you know, unpaid, but, uh, I was really feeling like I was accomplishing things and getting ahead. And basically by 2004, uh, through direct action and, and, and lawsuits were being filed, filed too, but um, we pretty much, the agencies had pretty much given up logging old growth trees. Mm -hmm. um, you know, any tree that was more than 200 years old, they pretty much had withdrawn and said, well, uncle, you know, we give up. We're not going to log old growth trees anymore, at least in Western Oregon and Washington and Northern California. Um, but, you know, they had other plans to start logging all the other trees that are less than 200 years old. Right. And so that became the next battle. It's like, okay, you're going to continue to log 
native forests, but you're just going to leave the big old trees unless they're in the way of logging, of right. course, um, which we saw several incidents of that where they said, oh, we're going to leave all the old gold trees. And then we discover after they started logging that they took about half the old gold trees and some of the some of these stands that they said they were going to save. Right. And so we threw up another tree set, you know, um, and like think of 2004 in the McKinsey watershed, mm-hmm. you know, and that called attention to that. And that was um, when they finally did give up is after that, you know, incident. Right. Yep. And uh, I was a part of the, that whole stuff going on in the McKenzie watershed, uh, we were, a lot of us were a part of it. That, that was uh, back in the day. So before getting into your entity, Eco Advocates Northwest, let's talk a little bit about where your involvement with the Sierra Club went. Because what ends up happening a lot of times with these larger organizations is there are folks who are very well-meaning and you know, biocentric, care about the natural world and advocating for it at all costs. They get involved with these large organizations and there's only so much headway they can make. And you had a lot of success with the Many Rivers group, but at a certain point of time, there ended up being some conflict. And I think uh, I think it would be great to hear a little bit about that. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, while I was doing all these other things and, and uh, bouncing around from timber sale to timber sale, road this areas, ski resorts, whatever, I was trying to you know, we were trying to stop these things um, and, you know, working through the Sierra Club and using their newsletter and 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 getting the word out statewide about these things going on because they had a newsletter that went to about 20,000 members across Oregon. And, you know, I would get published in there and every once in a while, you know, I would uh, I would expose, you know, uh, Senator Wyden or uh Peter DeFazio, which is our representative, for promoting logging and, and destructive policies. And both Democrats um, making yeah, that and, point. Yeah, and you know, the state is a Democratic state for the most part. Um, we've had a Democratic elected governor since probably for the last 34 years. Hmm. But, you know, the, the logging hasn't stopped or slowed down. Um, the only reason it did slow down is because of direct action and then lawsuits. And it wasn't politicians. The politicians, like Senator Wyden and DeFazio, are still promoting logging and, and, and biomass extraction mm-hmm. as much as possible. But, you know, I would criticize them in these newsletters. And every once in a while, there would be some pushback, like, oh, you shouldn't have said that. Or how did you get that published? And, you know, at one point, Oregon chapter was like, oh, well, we need to have a an editorial board for our newsletter because, you know, you know, people like Shannon are publicly critical of, of, of democratic, uh, you know, politicians that, you know, like Senator Wyden and Fozzie and we can't, we got to keep, keep an eye on people like that. So, you know, I was getting some pushback, but I still didn't stop doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, the election came about in around, uh, 2008, I became the chair of the Mini Rivers Group, and um, you know I started getting op-eds published, critical of um, the governor and 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 other politicians for promoting 
porous biomass incineration. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, they were trying to push this statewide. They were saying Oregon was the Saudi Arabia of forest biomass right. uh, energy, and we're going to make it that. You know, and and I pushed back by getting op-eds published, and then uh, started hearing some rumblings from, you know, uh, some staff in Portland, Sierra Club staff, they were saying, well, we were getting some context from Carl Pope and such that, you know, to keep an eye on me. <laughs> and that was around 2008. So era. Carl Pope, he was the head of Sierra Club at the time. Now. Yeah, he was the executive director of the National Sierra Club. And he, you know, directed staff. There was Sierra Club staff in Portland. Um, and so, you know, I was like, well, whatever, you know. And then, you know, by 2009, you know, and 10, all of a sudden, you know, the Many Rivers, certain people in the Many Rivers group were like, seemed like they were making moves to try to get rid of people who supported me within the group. And then by 2010, they actually ousted me as the chair. (laughs) Um, And the actual uh, Oregon chapter leader came to our meeting, traveled from Portland to Eugene to make sure that I was removed by attending that meeting and and manipulating it so that, uh, you know, one member who tried to vote over phone who had the flu Mm -hmm. and couldn't come to the meeting disqualified his vote, which I thought was uh, against the bylaws. But, you know, I was just like, oh, I, I just walked out. I said, you know, forget this. I spent 15 years with Sierra Club trying to make Sierra Club the most effective, you know, forest protection entity in Oregon. And this is my payment, you know, to be thrown out because I'm critical of democratic um, politicians who are, you know, promoting destruction of our last ancient forest. Well, because that's the thing. There's a big difference between the leadership, a lot of these groups, uh, the, you know, and then leadership at the local level and then the membership. So you were abiding by the things that need to happen in an environmental group, um, you know, basically following in the footsteps of David Brower, who, for folks who don't know, I and mean, he was the most legendary environmentalist ever. Uh, he really popularized the Sierra Club back in the day, and then they got rid of him. And uh, that's so that's basically a badge of honor is when the Sierra Club kicks you out. And a lot of it, yeah, seemed to be about your critique of Democrats who are supposed to be the pro-environmental party. And it turns out sometimes they're a little bit better, but in many times they're worse. Like you said, Senator Ron Wyden, he's been one of the biggest advocates for biomass energy in the country. So that's, you know, cutting forests for energy. It's coming from a Democrat. So do you see more and more that a lot of these environmental groups, the larger environmental groups for the most part, they're kind of just mouthpieces or, of, or auxiliaries of the Democratic Party? Well, you know, um, I don't even know what Democratic Party represents yeah. other than, you know, business as usual, um, but in a softer way with the rhetoric of like, oh, we're for the environment, but... Um, at least, you know, in their rhetoric, but when it comes down to it, what are they actually doing to protect anything? Mm -hmm. Um, 
You know, they're still promoting logging of ancient forest here. Um, Senator Wyden just is introducing a bill um, right now to uh, garner about $100 million of, of new money for more logging on national forests and for more biomass incineration. Right. Actively right now. And then, you know, Representative Peter DeFazio a few years ago promoted uh, uh, or sponsored a bill to basically privatize uh, over a million acres of public land for the timber industry. I mean, that didn't really go anywhere, but um, more recently, he just gave away 33,000 acres thereof of public land to uh, tribal governments that mm -hmm. basically drive all their money from logging, right. clear-cutting. And so it's like, well, these people, these so-called environmental democratic leaders are doing more destruction and they're not really protecting anything. And they're doing it under the cover of being pro-environmental. Right. So they can do some of the same things that a Republican would do, but either they get applause for it or just nobody comes out in opposition or, or no environmentalists do rather. Right. No mainstream, bigger environmental group is going to come out and publicly criticize um, Senator Wyden or Peter DeFazio or probably any other Democrat because, I mean, they're all in this one big cabal. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, we, we scratch your back, I'll scratch yours. And, you know, and like, you know, when DeFazio gave away this 33,000 acres, he also simultaneously... Um, protected this area outside Eugene of about 30,000 acres mm -hmm. as wilderness. But the area that was protected was never under any threat of being logged uh. because it's full of marble murelets that are protected species, yep. endangered species, northern spotted owls, and coho salmon. And so this area was never even threatened mm. anytime soon of being you know, destroyed or degraded, but yet now the environmentalists get to, to crow about, oh, look, we got a wilderness right. um, over here. Please give us more money and support and blah, 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 blah. Aren't we wonderful? And they're totally silent on this other quid pro quo mm. of 33,000 acres being given to the timber industry in Douglas County. Yeah, and it's that sleight of hand that's very common in a lot of the mainstream environmental movement. You know, what's also common is, look, we protected this wilderness that's all what they call rocks and ice. So it's like, it's not necessarily even commercially viable for logging anyway. And like, look, we protected it. And it's like, well, the, the logging industry didn't even want that because there, there are not enough uh, merchantable logs there. So yeah, that, that kind of thing is, is very common. Most folks don't know about that. And continuing on that theme of, mainstream environmental movement kind of selling out the environmental movement. This film Planet of the Humans recently came out that talks a lot about that. And it doesn't focus as much on forest issues. Uh, it does a little bit like the biomass issue and, and a few other things. But the fact that this film has come out and it came out on a very large platform, which is Michael Moore's platform. The film is written and directed by Jeff Gibbs, who is a longtime producer of Michael Moore. And Michael Moore obviously has a lot of clout and influence. So they put it out on YouTube uh, less than a month ago, and it's already gotten 8 million views. And the response from a lot of the public has been very positive, kind of like, wow, I, I didn't realize the environmental movement was 
not really always advocating for the environment, things like that, but a lot of the mainstream environmental movement that's critiqued in this, they have gone ballistic. And um, I, I guess I'd be curious just to hear maybe a little bit about your, your thoughts on the film. We don't need to go super in depth with that. I've talked about that a bit on the podcast before, but your, your thoughts on that and maybe thoughts on the mainstream environmental movement's reaction to the film? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I've heard about this film from a friend of mine, Michael Donnelly, for the last couple of years that he had a friend that was working on this. And, and, you know, we were like, wow, it sounds great. Let's wait, wait, see what it comes out. And, uh, we had no idea what it was really going to be about. Um, but then, uh, and then recently we've, we, you know, we've, learned it. Oh yeah. Now it's ready out. It's ready to be out. It's, it's, it's finished. And that was back in the fall. And, uh, we're like, well, maybe we can get it shown at the, the public interest environmental law conference, which is touted as the biggest environmental law conference in the world, or at least was, mm -hmm. um, where thousands of people from all over the world and country show up to talk about protecting the environment by using environmental law. And, and, uh, and, you know, we thought, well, uh, maybe we can get a, a, a venue to show the movie. And, uh, so, you know, uh, Michael Donnelly pursues that and then, you know, and I'm ready to jump on board to help promote it. And then suddenly it's like, oh, well, <laughs> the public interest environmental law conference doesn't want to set up a venue to have the movie shown at their event. And they usually always have venues for movies. Yep. I mean, multiple movies during this. It's like a three or four day event conference. And they've and they've had some pretty controversial speakers. I won't get into that, but it's not like they have always shied away from anything that's potentially controversial. But for this, they're like, nope, not going to show the film. Fascinating. Well, yeah. So, you know, uh, Public Interest Environmental Law Conference, you know, it's changed a lot since I first attended. I first attended back in, you know, 92, 93, and I actually, David Brower would show up, hmm. you know, as the keynote speaker, the commencement speaker every year, you know, for years and years. And, you know, always looked forward to seeing David Brower. Yep. And then, you know, it got really big in the late 90s, um, the conference did. And, you know, they had some really radical speakers there, you know, like uh, 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 Paul Watson and, and, and Winona LaDuc and, and others, you know, really inspiring people. Yeah. And uh, but as of late, you know, it's become more controlled by the climate movement or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they had people like James Hansen there recently and occasionally Bill McKibben will speak, but it's usually via Skype or something like that. Yeah. But, um, but then, you know, it, it all became like more like climate focused and, and right. suddenly the, the law conference was more about certain entities that were in control of like who could present there and, and what panels, um, you know, were allowed, you know, <laughs> and just to, to be, interject be really quickly, you, you don't think that, I mean, you'd think that climate change is an issue worth uh, dealing with, of course, right? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, like protecting the forest is is a is a 
pivotal mitigation measure to deal with climate. Right. And, you know, in fact, you know, we, you know, we put on a conference back in 2008 talking about clear cutting and climate. Yep. You know, and to this day, really, the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference and most of the Oregon environmental groups haven't even taken that on in a serious way. Yeah, the website's still up. Mark Rabinowitz has the website forestclimate.org. So it actually has some clips from that conference where we tied together forest protection and climate change. So, yeah, I just wanted to make that point because you're not saying, oh, the climate movement isn't doing anything. You're saying that the climate movement is being really myopic with just focusing on one aspect of the eco-crisis. And that tends to subvert certain aspects like forest protection and, and other things. Yeah. So, you know, it's like to me, it's like, OK, well, the, the bigger environmental or climate movement isn't really even paying attention to the logging of ancient forests yeah. around the world. They're they're putting all their eggs into like, oh, we're just going to, you know, promote electric cars and giant windmills and solar farms and, and you know, all these technologies. But, you know, they're how many resources are they focusing on saving ancient forests? They're still logging ancient forests right here, you know, just a few miles away from my home. Mm -hmm. They're still logging, you know, down in Southern Oregon, you know, um, everywhere, anywhere in there's national forests and big trees. Sure. Um, there's still timber sales being produced thousands of acres of timber sales by these agencies. And the climate movement is, is like, well, well, you know, we don't really know what to do, and uh, we're just going to focus on, you know, all these technologies promoting that. Um, but that's but that's not it, right? They're not only are they not working on the forest protection issue. A lot of those folks have been advocating for cutting trees for biomass energy for years, or at the very least, just kind of uh, leaving the door open for it without saying a thing. And that was. My involvement with Planet of the Humans, right? I'm in the clip about the impacts of biomass energy, cutting trees for electricity and um, well, transportation fuels and heating as well. And and Shannon was actually the first person who turned me on to the issues with biomass energy. It was back when I was in, in Oregon working for Native Forest Council and also uh, part of your organization, Shannon, Eco Advocates Northwest, and you called attention to these understory clear cuts. So basically what they call thinning of forests. So they're not necessarily cutting the biggest trees, but they're going into a lot of native forest stands and other forest stands. They're cutting out trees and they are using them for energy. So the climate movement has been a big, frankly, an advocate of that. Uh, Bill McKibben for years was a big advocate and um, he has changed his tune to a certain degree on that, but a lot of the reason why it was really difficult for us to call attention to those issues was because so many of the big environmental leaders were advocating for it. So I just wanted to interject that, but, uh, yeah, keep going with what you were saying. So the climate movement just, they become basically focused on, um, just alternative energy tech. And, um, before getting into that, why, why don't you talk a little bit about your, um, involvement with solar because you are no stranger to solar energy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, back in, uh, when I was a teenager, I mean, I, Jimmy, when Jimmy Carter started talking about solar and all that stuff, I was like, wow, that's wow. Great. That sounds like, you know, like magic or something. So I got really involved in it. Um, uh, 
You know, I was even part of the solar lobby back in the early 80s, you know, trying to stop Reagan, Ronald Reagan, from taking all the funding from the solar uh, energy and, and wind energy research budgets, which he did every year while he was, you know, president. And, uh, but yeah, I studied it. And then, you know, I, at some point I decided, well, you know, maybe I want to go into the energy field. So um, after the Forest Service, I learned about the Forest Service corruption and BLM corruption, you know, that I couldn't work within those agencies. Mm -hmm. I actually went back to school for, you know, a couple of years, community college, and got a degree in energy management, um, you know, and, and kind of focused on um, alternative energy or renewable energies like solar and wind because that's where I really wanted to go into. Um, and uh, in the meantime, yeah, I was still doing forest defense stuff, but um, trying to look ahead and going, you know, maybe someday, you know, I'll get into the energy field and, and you know, make a living that way because I feel like that's another way I can help the planet, help the biosphere, help other species is like lessening, lessening our impact to ecosystems and species. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, I've used solar electricity in various, you know, small little projects and even installed my own, um, you know, a small system, 1.5 uh, kilowatts or 1500 watt system, mm -hmm. which is not a lot, but, you know, it's pretty damn expensive. Yep. I mean, it, it was like, you know, about $10,000 just for a little 1.5 kilowatt system. And, um, and so, you know, I monitored it and all this stuff and, you know, um, what it was actually doing, you know, how much output it was, it was putting out, you know, how much energy it was displacing. And, uh, you know, I'm in Eugene, Oregon, you know, and it's like, we don't get a, a lot of sun. I mean, yeah, in the summer, yeah, we get a lot of sun for three or four months, but the rest of the year it's like cloudy, drizzly, rainy, you know, and, and, you know, in the winter we you know, solar here in the winter probably generates maybe 15% of what it would generate in the, the peak of the summer mm -hmm. um, because the sun is so low um, in the winter and, you know, the cloudy conditions and rainy conditions. Right. So, you know, it's, you know, I learned, you know, through experience that, yeah, solar, you know, it's it works for some things, but, you know, it's not going to power our entire civilization and our way of life, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> right. I don't know how much, how many solar power panels you can put up to, to, to like, and of course solar panels, you can't grow food with solar panels. I right. mean, you can't, you know, right. solar panels don't make fertilizer. Um, solar panels can't transport food thousands of miles from farms. Sure. Um, so, you know, electricity is kind of a privilege or a luxury you know, and I think it should be used that way because mm -hmm. um, it's a finite resource and uh, we should be, you know, a lot more better at managing or and using it more efficiently right. before we, you know, throw up giant mega wind farms and giant mega solar farms all over the planet. Um, so, you know, as far as that's where I agree with Planet of the Humans, it's like, you know, yeah, we can't just build our way out of this with all this technology because all this technology takes extraction of 
billions of tons of rare metals, uh, you know, mining, strip mining, and they're even talking about strip mining the seabed, the oceans, mm. to to attain the metals like copper and cobalt, nickel, to build all this so-called green infrastructure. Mm. I call it green industrialism. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, they just want to say, oh, well, we're going to replace all our coal and, and, and natural gas, allegedly, right. which is, I don't think is ever going to happen. But at least coal, they're like, oh, well, we're going to replace all the coal with, you know, solar and wind and blah, blah, blah. But you've got to mine billions of tons of all these rare metals mm -hmm. to do it. Right. So And they already acknowledged that mm -hmm. there's not enough metals on land surfaces to do what they are planning to do, that they actually have to strip mine the oceans, yeah. ocean beds to do yeah. this. It's insane. Well, that's, yeah, that's the footprint. And that's, that's a lot of the critique in Planet of the Humans. And it seems like your critique is we have to be aware of what the footprint is for these technologies and decide whether they're doing more harm than good or more good than harm. I mean, you would say that some community scale solar is, you know, probably part of the equation, right? Well, I, I would say, you know, whether whether the infrastructure can handle it, mm -hmm. because, um, you know, the power lines are only so thick, right? They can mm -hmm. only carry so much, you know, electricity, electrons, before you know you 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 could overload your transformers and you know and and there there you lose you know your efficiencies or you you blow up the system you blow up your transformers like in, i've heard in hawaii there's so many people doing solar that they have to basically because they have you know less infrastructure there that the power lines are actually not as you know heavy as you know say in, in the states so they have to limit the amount of solar electric systems they can have on the grid because <laughs> it can overload the grid interesting the small grids they have so, you know, there's only so far you can go, but yeah, take advantage where the, where the grid is large and, and mm -hmm. can handle um, things like that without destroying habitat, you know, like rooftops right. and warehouses, uh, parking lots, you know, maybe stuff like that. But, you know, um, beyond that, I don't, I don't know, maybe right. some on um, near dams. I've heard about floating solar, which is basically putting solar panels in the middle of bodies of water, reservoirs mm -hmm. or lakes, mm -hmm. which is, you know, there's really no footprint. I mean, you're probably going to affect wildlife like waterfowl. Right. But I don't know. I don't I haven't seen any studies to to, you know, say this is the impact because there's not a lot of them out there, at least in the United States. Right. Well, particularly reservoirs are also not even uh, natural bodies of water. So they're already kind of weird places anyway. Might as well make use of them. Well, because I wanted to make the point between there's community scale and industrial scale. And I think it's very interesting because those who are big advocates for, you know, all forms of alternative energy, which a lot of times is way more than uh, solar and wind. It's biomass, big hydro, those sorts of things. They're not talking as much about this community scale. And it's like, why don't we maximize that 
first before trying to make these mega facilities. Um, you know, I'm still learning more about it and the impacts and stuff like that. And, and, and but it's interesting. It's like, why we're not doing all those smaller things. We don't really hear the environmental groups talk as much about that. It seems like they just want to put their basket in the, uh, industrial scale stuff. So, um, that seems to be a lot of the controversy around Planet of the Humans are saying, oh, well, this film came out and it says never build a solar panel. And I don't think that's what it says, but it's very interesting that that's what people turn the, the discussion into. But uh, what other aspects of Planet of the Humans are you resonate with you? Well, like I said before, yeah, I really appreciate that they're pointing out that, you know, you can't just build our way out of this, mm -hmm. you know, catastrophe that we've created over the last, well, 150 years, ever since we discovered fossil fuels, um, especially liquid fossil fuels, we've become completely dependent on liquid fossil fuels to expand you know, our population, expand our footprint, expand our cities, our agricultural system. So, you know, it's, it's just like we've, we've overshot <laughs> the planet's capacity to, to, to repair itself, to like, you know, to, to handle our footprint, to have handled, you know, 7 billion people right. and all our agriculture to feed 7 billion people. And so it's, you know, to me, it's like, yeah, we need to think about, okay, what, what are our basic necessities? You know, what do we really just need, not just want? You know, it's like food, water, shelter, health care, um, happiness, whatever that is. You know, it's like, you know, uh, uh, making your way through your life by being productive and, and being part of your community and helping your community. Right. To me, that's... Those are the basics that we should be thinking about. We shouldn't think, be, you know, like the, all these other things are like, to me, luxuries, the hospitality industry. It's like, oh, airline travel and, and restaurants and hotels and cruise ships and, you know, and shopping at the mall. You know, all those things are luxuries. And, you know, when it comes down to it, it's like we need to think about what do we really just need? And what, where are we going if we don't change right. that perspective? I mean, we're, we're quickly going into the realm of our own extinction. You know, if we don't like just get back to just maintaining the basics for our own survival and for the biosphere's survival, because, yes. you know, there's, <laughs> we've said that we've been saying this for decades. There's no jobs on a dead planet. Mm -hmm. There's no, you know, equality for anybody on a dead planet. Right. You know, that that's the bottom line. You know, there's there's no human life on a dead planet. There's no school on a dead planet. There's nothing on it. You know, it's like mm -hmm. that's what we have to think about. I think day after day, you know, when we make decisions on, you know, what, where should I, you know, do with my life? Um, right. Should I be benefiting my community or should I just be looking out for myself um, to obtain the, 
the newest car or the, the latest gadget, you know? Um, yeah, there's certain things that we need that we've gotten accustomed to, um, that we like having in our life, you know, but, um, maybe we can think a little deeply, more deeply about, you know, what is the impact of that action or buying that thing to our future, to, you know, future generations, right. to other life on this planet that is just as deserving as humans to exist on this planet with us. Yeah. Well, it seems like the deep critique of uh, Planet of the Humans is the aspect that a lot of these mainstream environmentalists and folks in the climate movement object to. It's not the fact that they pointed out some, some of the uh, negative environmental footprint of alternative energy. Um, it was more that here are limitations to this. So even if even if solar and wind are you know do no damage, which of course they do. You know right now I believe it's uh, solar is at like 1.8 percent of electricity, and uh, wind is uh, I can't remember if it's like between seven and ten something like that. But that that's not very much, and that's electricity is 38 percent of energy use. So that's not that's still not very much. Clearly we have to go deeper, and uh, the Green Root Podcast. Why I wanted to create this is to be able to talk about some of those root causes. And you hit the nail on the head with what you were saying. And I think that's what is also in Plan of the Humans. Like we got to take a deeper look at, so why are we demanding all of this energy? And why are we doing all of this uh, environmental destruction? Because it's not just about our energy. Even if we got that taken care of, we're still consuming every resource on the planet. Um, and all of that is finite and we are expanding infinitely. So I really personally think, and I'd be curious what you think, I think that's why environmentalists, uh, mainstream environmentalists are so sensitive about the film is because it's talking about those kind of uncomfortable issues that they've largely been leaving off of their agenda. I mean, here and there, they'll say, oh, you know, turn off a light switch and yeah, that's good, you know, but that's not the kind of deep level change that you and I and Planet of the Humans have been talking about. No, no. And, you know, I've heard for years, oh, in various circles, even in the energy management, especially energy management circles that, oh, you know, when uh, Jimmy Carter back in the 70s when he was president, asked people, you know, he went on TV and asked people, you know, put on a sweater if you right. feel cold. Don't turn on, up the thermostat. And, you know, and, and, and maybe drive less or, you know, just be mindful about how you're using things and, and maybe just, you know, do without a little bit. Right. And, you know, they, they throw that out. It's like, oh, well, that was a terrible thing to do. You can't ask people to, you know, make sacrifices mm -hmm. um, for others or, or, or um, to be whatever, do without. Right. And I think the whole environmental movement for the most part, especially mainstream environmental movement, mm -hmm. has refused to, mm. to go down that road of asking people and, and saying, hey, no, we can't have it all, mm -hmm. you know? It's like, they will, will not say that. They will not tell people the truth, mm -hmm. what it comes down to, because they don't think that people can handle the truth. And yeah, maybe a certain percentage of people can't handle like look this pandemic certain mm -hmm. percentage of people can't handle the truth <laughs> yeah you know 
Um, they'd just go out and like, oh, whatever, mask, I don't care, you know, whatever. Uh, right. It's like, I'm not infected and I'm not going to get it. And, you mm-hmm. know, they didn't want to live in the state of denial. Yeah. But the truth is, yeah, we're heading towards extinction and none of the environmental groups want to even touch human extinction at all. I, sure. I've never heard anyone say it. I mean, some people obviously are saying it, but not in the mainstream. Well, yeah, who's who's saying it? Yeah, I mean, Naomi Klein's not saying it. Noam Chomsky isn't saying it. They all tiptoe around it. Right. Uh, Chris Hedges, all these people, you know, they've they've got a lot of people listening to them, um, but they will not say it. It's like, well, if they say it, that means, well, as soon as they say it, are they blacklisted? Mm -hmm. Will they never get a book published again or an article published again once they? Start talking the truth, well, the unpleasant truth that's like that we're heading towards human extinction. Right. Um, I mean, the film kind of touches on that when you first, you know, the first intro to the film is like, how long do you think the human species has on this planet? You know, yeah. it's like yeah. right there. Yeah. And some people said forever. The woman in the bar, you know, drinking, carousing at the bar. She's like, oh, forever. And it's like, oh, yeah. Hmm. But, you know, I think people we have to say, OK, this is where we're going. How do we prevent that? What do we have to do to prevent our own extinction? That should be pretty much the the, the basic, you know, question. Well, do you think that this pandemic has at least gotten people to certain people to maybe wake up a little bit? I'm not talking about most people. I'm saying because we don't need everyone on board. We need enough folks who are moving forward in a similar direction to call attention to stuff. So do you think that some people more are like, wow, the uh, system as we thought it is not as stable as we thought. And, you know, this is not, it doesn't seem like Corona is going to kill everyone in, in the world, but it, it's a, a harbinger of what can come in terms of more pandemics, of course, but perhaps things that are even uh, more concerning, such as runaway climate change or just ecosystem collapse. So do you think people are maybe right now in a more susceptible mindset for thinking about these issues? Uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, probably the the realization that, you know, the system is pretty fragile, Mm -hmm. the, the fragile, the way we've constructed it over the last, say, 100 years, maybe 50 years, even more so because of technology. You know, cell phones, computers, you know, are pretty much in control of everything. And, you know, of course, people are supposedly, you know, there to make fix things and fix glitches when they happen. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I think they are more open to uh, to hearing new ideas of like, well, the old system is pretty much failed. Yeah. You know, capitalism and, and, you know, the whole Oh well, you know, if it's profitable, then it's beneficial to to society because you know, otherwise, you know, they wouldn't do it, right? Mm-hmm. But um, it's failed. You know, the capitalist system has failed. I mean, if a system is driving your own species into extinction, wouldn't you call that failure? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we're looking at. I mean, the capitalist system and other systems have kind of been competing with capitalism in a, in a similar way, you know, authoritarian, you know, it's like, oh, yes, we're going to, you know, but now China has taken a form of capitalism, mm-hmm. more like a communist type of capitalism. 
um, or authoritarian type capitalism um, and is pushing their own, you know, hey, we're going to do better than or bigger than the United States and we're going to destroy as much, if not more of the world than you guys did, you mm -hmm. know, what's left of it anyway, um, to attain our, you know, whatever, you know, as the empire of the world. Right. Um, so it's all going down the same road, but it's just like, you know, if that system has failed <laughs> or is, you know, if we end up going extinct, isn't that a failure of, of those systems? <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. Well, that's what I appreciate about your analysis, because even though you have that deep ecology perspective, uh, everything tying back to that foundation of everything, which is our ecosystems that keep us alive. You do talk about things like economic systems and then also social issues like poverty and war and how that all ties in. So would you be willing to talk a little bit about how you know the environmental movement can't just operate in some bubble. It also has to look at things like militarism and things like that. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I grew up pretty much uh, in poverty. I mean, you know, I grew up on food stamps and, 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 you know, barely getting by every month, um, as far as my parents and everything, um, in Southern Oregon. So I know what poverty feels like. I've eaten out of dumpsters, you know, when I was going to college or trying to go to college in Eugene <laughs> mm -hmm. just to survive. Um, but yeah. And, you know, and I've always, I've always never been, uh, very patriotic, I guess you would call call it. Um, I've well, never been a supporter of the military. You're and, an ecosystem and, patriot, though, right? You're right, <laughs> but you know, I've never been a you know I, maybe it's some influences after learning about the Vietnam War and, and yeah. things like that, where sure. where I've always kind of been anti-militaristic in some respect, mm -hmm. but um, and I always just saw like, oh, the military. Well, it's like you know, it's just an industry. You know, that's pretty much taken over America. Um, you know, that's where most of our funding goes from our from our taxes mm -hmm. is to build bigger and better weapons to to kill each other or to to dominate other nations or to be the supreme empire. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just, you know, insanity. And then the more I learned about Martin Luther King and why he was murdered, because he took on the military industrial complex, mm -hmm. you know, and he took it on head on and, you know, they couldn't have that. So they took him out. And then Robert F. Kennedy was probably going to go down the same road. And so they, mm -hmm. you know, they saw that threat and took him out and JFK, probably the same thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was way before my time, but the more I learned about what they were trying to do and take back the country from the military industrial complex and the real deep state, which is, you know, military deep state, hmm. um, who's really in control of things, <laughs> mm -hmm. the empire, um, with, you know, the elite kind of somewhere in the mix, you know, calling the shots. But yeah, so it's like, here we, here we are, you know, um, uh, 50 some years after Martin Luther King and, and all that. And, we still haven't taken back our country from the military industrial complex. Right. 
and yet they're getting more and more money to build you know bigger bombs and more powerful bombs and now we're going to have a space force right you know we're going to whatever Supposedly. have satellites that are going to control the world you know if you if you get out of line and piss off the united states we're going to zap you with our satellite <laughs> or something so now china wants to like oh we can't have the united states be the space force we got to have our own space force Yikes. so here's another like arms race mm -hmm. you know um in the meantime our whole biosphere is collapsing around us by collapsing like <laughs> mm -hmm. you know the oceans are getting ready basically to collapse ecosystems are collapsing on our you know around us and yet we have all these resources we're going to waste on building bombs and spaceships and sending people to mars or whatever right um it's just it's insane it's like you you know the direction we're heading but yet you totally ignore it and this is another thing that that, that these social and environmental so-called movements mm. will not address mm. no one's really even talking about it yeah there's a few small groups here and there fringe groups you know, and, 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 and all the other big multi-million dollar groups are like, no, we're on our own little tread hamster wheel and right. it pays well. And, you know, we're collecting hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever to keep our foundation, you know, our, our entities running. And so everything's fine. Mm -hmm. We're not going to touch, you know, these bigger picture issues. Like, why are we spending a trillion dollars or more every year on weapons when we could, could be spending those resources protecting ecosystems mm -hmm. um, protecting frontline communities cleaning them up giving people jobs actually protecting their communities and making their communities more resilient to whatever it is pandemics climate change uh you know catastrophic events you know governments failing it's like, why aren't we taking those resources from where it's being wasted mm -hmm. and put it to, to like support our community, our human community, right? Worldwide, not just in this country, but worldwide. Yeah. Well, those are the cross pollination things that we need to be doing. That most of these groups. You know, let's say they're focused on environmental and climate, and, you know, and they're very narrowly even focused on that. So they're not even looking at the whole environmental issue, much less how it ties into all these other aspects. So, yeah, I do appreciate that analysis because we have to look at things that way. We can't just look at one part of the elephant or whatever the phrasing is. So and a lot of people do point like, well, where are we going to have the funding for that? It's like, well, maybe taking it out of the budget for uh, military and it's like well why do we have such a high budget for military well a lot of it is to commandeer resources for the american way of life so it all kind of comes back into focus that way right right well well yeah you know it's like the elite in the the real deep state the military deep state cia nsa whatever who knows what other agencies are out there that we don't even know exist but right. um especially around the world but you know, yeah, it's, it's basically the empire has to maintain access to resources to maintain its empire. Yeah. So how does it do that? Well, you know, we have 
armies, militaries, yeah. and anyone gets out of line and then, you know, so flips the finger to us and says, yeah, yeah, we're not going to play ball with you. We're going to be, and the United States was like, whoa, what? Mm-hmm. We'll just come on over there and take you over. Sure. <laughs> you know, like we did in Panama and uh, where else? Uh, well, we took out the Libya leader because he wouldn't play play ball. Uh, mm-hmm. We planned on taking, oh, of course, Saddam, you know, we were like, yeah. oh, you want to play ball with us? We'll just come over and take you out. Now it's Venezuela, mm-hmm. right? Like, you want to play ball? Well, we're going to just, you know, just, we'll get you eventually. We'll take you out. Yeah. We're working on it. So she's out. That's that's the way empires operate. But it's yeah. just, but the people go, who go along with it, you know, and, and to me, when these large nonprofit entities, whether you're environmental group or social justice group, mm-hmm. if you just go along to get along, you're part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. Yeah, well, if you trace the funding, a lot of it, you know, if not all of it, is from large foundations, and those are corporate-funded foundations. So that's that's where the money comes from. It comes from energy corporations or other individuals who have been a part of that, and you think that those foundations are going to want to fund efforts that will basically harm their, you know, milk cows. It, it's just unlikely to happen. But so one of the critiques of Planet of the Humans is that it doesn't offer solutions. And personally, I don't think its purpose was to, and, you know, in a hundred minute film, like you're only going to get to so much. I think it personally, the, the point of it was to reframe the problem because uh, the mainstream environmental movement has obfuscated it to a certain degree. So now that we're re- reframing the fr- problem, what are what are what's kind of the way forward in your mind? Because that's what I feel like this film is doing, and it's interesting because it uh, it's saying, okay, here is the problem. How do we move forward with it? The mainstream environmental movement is basically saying uh, the film is lies and don't watch it and have tried to prevent people from watching it. Um, so for those of us, you know, we can critique them until the the cows come home. My second cow analogy. We can keep critiquing the mainstream environmental movement, and that's totally legitimate to do so. But I think more important is that we move forward with what we should be doing instead and taking some of the momentum from Planet of the Humans, which is either waking up some folks or, or for the first time, people who are saying, wow, I'm now caring about the environmental stuff and they're kind of bypassing the whole mainstream stuff. So I know you have an organization, Eco Advocates Northwest, eco-advocates.org is the website. Um, you know, so you're continuing with doing all sorts of work on ecosystem advocacy, but what is the general way forward? Like how should those of us who care about environmental issues and, and, you know, threats to ecosystems and human civilization or humanity itself on all the species on the planet, what, what should we be doing? Well, you know, I, I really look at myself more of as a biospheric mm-hmm. uh, advocate or, uh, or an antibody, you know, trying to prevent, you know, a cancer right. from destroying the host, you know, that we, <laughs> that we live on <laughs> yeah. or couldn't live without. Um, but, you know, with, with no resources, you know, you can only do so much. Right. So you, you have to stay local, I guess, in some respects. And if you see something national or international, 
maybe, you know, try to expose it to the world and say, hey, look, like this deep sea ocean bed mining for, you know, electric cars and, and giant windmills. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, it's not really out there very much, but, you know, least I can do is try to get it out there to the rest of the world. And, and, and so I think that's what Jeff Gibbs and, and, and the other, and Michael Moore, of course, were trying to do. It's just like, you know, when we have so many resources, what is the biggest bang for the buck? You know, what can we produce that, you know, would kind of expose this, this green industrialist delusion mm. that's being promoted by environmental groups and, and the industries that, you know, are going to make billions off all this stuff like Elon Musk and, and, and the rest. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, expose it to the world. But yeah, they didn't really focus on, cause they didn't have the time. Sure. And I think it's, it's, they don't really have, I don't think they want to say that they have all the answers either. Cause I don't, right. I don't think anyone does mm -hmm. any one person yeah. or entity, but you know, maybe, you know, set the stage mm -hmm. where people like us who have, who see this, you know, as almost destructive, if not more destructive than the first industrialization of, you know, like this would be the second wave of industrialization, but calling it green, you know, um, you know, first wave would be the last 200 years of fossil fuel industrialization. So right. now they want to turn it into a, well, a green industrialization mm -hmm. that's not based on fossil fuels, which is never going to happen. But it's the delusion that they're, that's the propaganda that they're pushing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so, you know, people like us who, are, who see what's coming on and coming down the road, getting together, uh, as some sort of coalition or alliance, mm -hmm. you know, as antibodies to this, this cancer and delusion. Um, and hopefully g gaining some momentum, working together, uh, and finding, I think direct action has to be a part of it, mm. obviously, because I've, you know, most of the very successful things that I've been involved in in campaigns involves direct action. Right. It, it's kind of a pivotal tactic to get to accomplish your goal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I think we do have to um, look at that tactic as pivotal in that, in our, you know, direction to, to attain that goal. Mm -hmm. But, um, but how do we get there? You know, I hope we can get together as a, as a movement, you know, bring in three, you know, 350 and others want to like talk about this stuff. Right. Seriously. And seriously deal with it. Then great. Join us. You know, right. um, we've tried joining you and trying to get through to you, but right. these groups are in almost impossible to get through to. Right. Uh, they're just like, they got the gatekeepers and there's like, Oh no, no, you, you know, unless you're on our, our platform, we don't have anything to do with you. Yep. Uh, you know? Yep. I, yeah. I a hundred percent agree with that as somebody who has tried to work within a lot of these entities and, you know, it's cause some of the critique of Planet of the humans and some of the critique of folks like us who critique these 
groups are saying, oh, you know, you're being, you know, it was too, too much, you know, why do you need to go crapping on them? It's like, because we've been trying to talk to you guys about these issues for decades and you ignore us, you silence us, you, you slander us, you go after our funding. So I think Planet of the Humans was like, sorry, buddy, you know, we're, we're going to go for the jugular. And, you know, I, I think there's some legitimate critique in terms of, all right, are, are we going to just be able to beat up on people? And, and no, the answer is uh, let's, you know, make a critique and then move forward, like you said, and then saying, hey, do you all want to hitch on to what's happening? Because I think you'd probably agree to a certain extent, Shannon, that a lot of big environmental groups, like they're these huge ships that can't really uh, steer very quickly. So there's all these smaller, there's all these smaller entities, which you can call like kayaks. And this analogy is not going to make a lot of sense, but they're able to like, no, we're going to do this now. And all of a sudden when they go in that direction, some of these environmental groups, they'll kind of come along to that. Like a lot of the environmental groups were pro natural gas, right? And then the grassroots anti-fracking movement came and said, well, not so much. Now the mainstream environmental movement is basically just almost entirely <laughs> no fossil fuels, no fracking, which sure, I'm, I'm on board with that, but they're opening the door to nuclear power and biomass energy. And now they're like, you know, they love biomass energy. And now they're like, oh, we don't love that anymore. It's like, yeah, because the grassroots pointed out how not cool it is. So what Correct me if I'm wrong. What you're saying is we all need to forge a path forward and then have the larger environmental groups follow us. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the bottom line, again, comes down to like, okay, um, it's like they don't want to confront this, this American dream lifestyle. They don't mm. want to say point blank that it's unsustainable and it's driving our own extinction. Mm -hmm. They refuse to, to even touch it. And, you know, and, and, but it's gotta be, someone's gotta talk about this, you right. know, and, or everybody's got to talk about it really. Um, you know, cause that's what it's coming down to. It's like, we're, there's so many of us on this planet and more and more, want to use more and more resources that the planet just can't sustain any longer. Sure. Um, or maybe it never could uh, after we reached a certain population and, and, um, you know, lifestyles. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, and to me, it's again, back to like, what are the bare necessities, you know, food, water, shelter, healthcare, and, you know, making your way through life, mm -hmm. supporting your community. Hopefully yeah. we get compensated for that, mm -hmm. you know, but you, I don't think there's any room for billionaires <laughs> in this, in that kind of world or trillionaires, um, who can, you know, hoard like, you know, unbelievable amounts of money, mm -hmm. more money than a lot of countries have. Yep. And, uh, but yeah, so, you know, it's like we need these bigger groups, the environmental groups to, to deal with that situation, to deal with that, you know, yeah, the elephant in the room. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, can we have um, a livable planet and live, everyone live like kings and queens? Right. Like we do in the United States and Europe? Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, 
I've, I've used the analogy before, you know, that the king and queen of England in the 1930s and 40s, they didn't have anything close to the lifestyle that you and I have access to. Yeah. You know, they couldn't jump on an airline plane and, drop, and, and fly around the world. They didn't have any food they wanted from <laughs> anywhere in the world, any time of day and night. Yeah. They didn't have all the technologies, you know, our computers, our TVs, our, you know, our high-tech cars, you know, it's just on and on and on. We just live so extravagantly, but we kind of t take it for granted Yes. right now that we can just do whatever we want when we want. But, you know, it's just, we have to address that if we want to survive as a species. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, you know, in my mind, it's also looking at the positive aspects of how a simpler lifestyle can actually benefit the individual and the community. It can actually be kind of nice to just chill out and not consume. I think a lot of folks are seeing that during the stay-at-home public health orders where they're not out there constantly consuming and you know, trying to get stimulation. They're just kind of hanging out a bit. And so a lot of people are realizing this more contemplative simpler lifestyle, even though it's not going to be permanent in this regard, is actually a good thing. It's, it's, a, it's a positive thing for our psychological well-being. It could be our physical health. I mean, some people are, are suffering more than others, but I think it's a little taste of how we can possibly do things slightly differently, at least give it a try and realize it might be even better for our mental health. Oh, yeah. I think I think it I mean, it can be. I don't know. The situation now is necessarily because most people are living in anxiety of, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know how they're going to get by or uh, make their mortgage payment or, or not die. Or, yeah, of or, course. <laughs> or not get sick when they're forced to work. And I think that's another th essential thing. We we the movements or with climate movement, whatever, they're not really reaching out to these, you know, the 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 grunts, the workers out mm. there who are doing all the dirty grunt work, right? Um, making, you know, making our society, you know, function right. from day to day, you know. Very true. And unions have pretty much been busted up since, mm. you know, especially since Ronald Reagan took over, you know. Um, and I think, you know, it would, you know, we really need to be in the same, what could I say, you know, um, like say we're in the same boat, you know, it's like the workers in the planet. It's, it's, it's like, how do we bring them into our realm, you know, mm -hmm. um, and assure them that we're not trying to take things away from them right. that they may need or want. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, when you say, oh yeah, you, we can't burn fossil fuels anymore and blah, 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 blah. And you can't drive your, you know, it's like, well, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of targeting the poorest people because you're saying, well, you know, we're going to make you pay more for, um, gasoline because we're going to make, we're going to tax it or put a carbon tax on it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and the, and the right wing is going to go, well, you know, they're going to like, they're going to put the burden on poor people, which, you know, the, the Republicans don't obviously don't care about that, but they'll use it. Sure. So how do we bring them in 
with us and say, hey, we're offering you and your and your family, you know, a better life. Mm-hmm. Which I don't, you know, as the environmental movement, I don't think has ever bridged that gap. Not, not really. Certainly not the mainstream. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right about that, and I think that's some of the critique of the Democratic Party is it doesn't reach out to the working class. So I think all of that needs to be addressed. I, I think that's totally spot on. But uh, we'll probably wrap things up, Shannon. Uh, it's been really great to have you on the podcast. And yeah, the Green Root Podcast, it's all about these deeper discussions of going into the root of how we need to be thinking, the, the issues that we need to take a look at and how to take a look at them. And you've been central to this for decades and you've opened my eyes to a lot of this. Um, so let, let folks know that you can check out what Shannon's doing at uh, eco-advocates.org. You're on Facebook too, right? Eco Advocates Northwest. And on Twitter, Eco Advocates Northwest, your handle is suga underscore Wilson, T-S-U-G-A underscore Wilson. Uh, or anything else you want to say to folks? Well, I'd just like to say, uh, yeah, appreciate the time that you took to get me onto this technology. But... Uh, <laughs> There's also uh, on my website, I have a, uh, a list of mitigation measures nice. that um, there's probably like 40 or 50 of them that some would probably think are pretty extreme, you know, like, uh, you know, no more highway or airport expansions mm-hmm. and doing away with uh, airline travel, at least non-essential travel. Um Things like that, um, mm-hmm. not building uh, cars at all at some point in the future, because I think we have enough cars on the planet, yeah. you know, um, and, you know, we can do with what we have probably for the next 50 years without building new cars or new airplanes, mm-hmm. and especially the military industrial pl- complex. We don't need any more weapons of mass destruction on this planet. So there's there's a list of things there you might want to check out. It's called the the re, the real green the green real deal mm-hmm. and uh, mitigation measures that might pre- you know prevent our own uh, extinction. Yeah, I'm looking at that right now. Yeah, the green real deal as opposed to the the green new deal, which I mean the green new deal was a term that was being used for years and they just took it for their the latest thing, you know, some good stuff, some not so good. But yeah, this is going to deep level stuff. So folks should definitely check that out. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on the podcast and uh, we'll definitely be in touch. Thank you, Josh.